All right, well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started with our uh, Sunday school hour. And so uh, this morning we're continuing, uh, almost concluding our study through systematic theology um, with the last of our studies in eschatology and the eternal state of the believer. I'm going to read a passage from Hebrews in chapter 11, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our study together. From Hebrews in chapter 11, uh, verses 13 and following, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning, Lord, we are before you and in your presence and before this congregation, um, I acknowledge and confess, Lord, my, um, my own weakness and um, unfitness to expound upon or to communicate the, uh, the treasures and the beauties of the truth uh, within this doctrine. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, do what um, the Spirit of God always does does when the word goes forth that he would um, pierce our hearts by it, uh, that he would open our eyes, that he would um, allow it to sink into our hearts, and that he would give us understanding um, to, to see more clearly the beauty and the glory of what you have stored up for the saints in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right. So I don't see Tally in here yet. I think I can share this story. Um, for those of you who know my wife, uh, you know that she is an avid reader and a, a lover of books. It's actually starting to get a little bit out of control at this point. <laughs> there is nowhere left to put the books. And I'm kind of kidding. I, I like the books, too, just not as much. Um, but for years now, Tally and I have had this sort of running joke about how when either of us finishes, oh, there she is. Hey, babe, sorry. Um, whenever we f finish a really good book, there is this sort of inevitable mourning phase that you, that you go through when you realize it's over. Actually, just this week, Tally, she finished a, a book. It's the re most recent book by whoever one of your favorite authors is. And uh, afterwards, one morning, she told me, and my life has no meaning now. <laughs> Maybe some of you have experienced that. When you reach the final chapter, you turn the last page and read the end. It's kind of like, well, now what? I think part of the reason that we feel this is because in our heart of hearts, there is an innate longing for the good story that does not end, but goes, <clears throat> but goes on and on and keeps getting better. 
So the bad news for Tally and for book lovers everywhere is that there is no such fictional story. But the good news that's revealed by the doctrine we're looking at together this morning is that in the true story of God's redeeming love after the last chapter begins the new beginning. This is the doctrine of the eternal state. This doctrine seeks to answer the question, what does the Bible reveal about the state of eternity? What will it be like after the last battle, after the final judgment, what comes next? What will heaven be like? This is a question that, sadly, I think if we're honest, many Christians older than 12 and younger than 85 don't spare a lot of thought for. I think there are some reasons for this. Uh, The one that uh, I'm probably most prone to is is distraction. We can be distracted um, by the cares and the busyness of this world, like some old country preachers used to say, Uh, The sweet by and by gets swallowed up in the grim now and now. Um, Another reason for this is, is sadly, uh, that people tend to think or to say that um, eternity, the eternal state, is just so far beyond our comprehension, it's not something that we care to contemplate. Uh, But guess what? So is God. And there is no verse in the Bible that excuses us from studying what is revealed about eternity in his presence. Um, Sometimes as well, thoughts of heaven or a preoccupation with eternity might be even looked down upon in the church or discouraged um, as some sort of hyper-spiritual escapism. Uh, Have you heard this phrase? That person is too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. Let me tell you, um, if we aren't of any earthly good, it is because we are not heavenly-minded enough. In Romans, in chapter 8, Paul says of this eternal heavenly state that it is the hope in which we are saved, the promise that we receive at salvation when the saints will receive their inheritance He says that creation itself groans as if in childbirth, awaiting with longing and eager expectation to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God in the eternal state. It is this longing anticipation which should shape our priorities and permeate our lives for the eternal state. So it's important that we know and we study what the scriptures have to say about this doctrine. So while there are many texts throughout the Bible which directly feed into our understanding of this doctrine of the eternal state, and we're going to reference some of them this morning, the most crucial text with the most bearing on this doctrine is found in Revelation in chapter 21 and 22. So turn there if you would. There's a lot going on in this passage. A lot of things that we would point out and notice. So we're going to, hopefully this morning, draw out some key aspects of the eternal state that are revealed in this text. Um, But before we read, we should understand 
that there is in this text a central theme which ties all of these aspects of the eternal state together. There is a common thread which goes all the way back to the beginning and parallels the new creation with the creation and Genesis. And it is summed up in this one divine statement from verse 5, chapter 21 and verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Renewal and restoration is the central theme of the doctrine of the eternal state. It runs like a scarlet thread throughout the scriptures, and its recurring melody introduced in Genesis grows and grows until it reaches its climactic finale in Revelations 21 and 22. So it is that same theme of God's promised renewal and restoration of his good creation and of his people that we want to draw out as we look at each of these aspects of the eternal state. So we want to see how God is making all things new. We see him doing this first in his renewal of creation with the new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I like how the first word of this verse is then. At this point, after these things. So it's important to understand where this falls in the timeline of these eschatological events. Um, so the new heaven and the new earth spoken of in this passage come after the millennial kingdom reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation and chapter 20. And after Jesus has handed over the kingdom to his father, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this is the final chapter in God's story of redemption, but it is the final chapter that begins the new story of eternity with him. And so there are these parallels throughout this account going back to Genesis and that first creation that help us to value what is coming and what God is going to do in the eternal state. So uh, something else that we need to know about this doctrine of the new heavens and the new earth is that this is a real place. We're not talking about a state of mind. This is the final destination of God's people that we are, we are reading about in this text. So there are those within the church who want to interpret this as, um, as being allegorical, um, some type of spiritual metaphor. Uh, there are those who would say that the, the new heavens and the new earth are a purely spiritual reality, a state of mind rather than a literal physical uh, place. But God's word speaks of these future events and the new creation in such clear terms that they do not lend themselves to any metaphorical interpretation. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, we read, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens, and a new earth. 
and the former things shall not be remembered. So if the new heavens and the new earth were a present metaphorical reality or some state of mind, the scriptures would not speak of them in this way. Uh, we also see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, that the new heavens and the new earth are something that we are waiting for. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we rightly take the Genesis account of creation to be a literal event. So should we interpret the account of God's renewed creation in Revelation 21 to be a literal, literal physical place where we in our glorified bodies will live and act. So we are awaiting a literal new heavens and a new earth. Now, within this discussion of the new heavens and the new earth and what exactly happens when God recreates the world, it's worth, it's worth mentioning that there is some variance of interpretation among sound Bible scholars where on the one hand you have what is called annihilation theory um, and on the other uh, is the restoration theory. So annihilation theory is, is what it sounds like, basically the premise that the new heavens and the new earth um, God is starting over with a completely new planet because the old one has been done away with or annihilated. So there's plenty of support for this theory. In uh, the biblical languages or the biblical language that is used um, when the new heavens and the new earth are spoken of, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Um, and in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Jesus also speaks in this way in uh, Matthew 24 and verse 35, when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, so that's annihilation theory and some of its proof texts. Restoration theory, which Full disclosure, I tend to be somewhat more convinced of than annihilation theory, maintains that God's creation of the new earth means a renewal um, or a renovation of his original creation uh, of this planet. So passages that talk about the present earth passing away are interpreted to mean not ceasing to exist, uh, but rather that God is going to um, destroy this present world somewhat by fire in the same way that he, he once destroyed it by water. So the main argument for this position comes from Romans in chapter 8 and verse 20. Um, I'm going to read from this passage. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, in this passage, what we see is how the fate of creation itself follows the fate of mankind. So, when man fell, so did the world. Um, when man came under the curse, so did God's good creation. And Paul says that just as we are anticipating our final glorification and resurrected bodies, so does the creation eagerly 
anticipate not annihilation, but restoration. So there is room for, um, for differing interpretations between these two theories. And with either of, either of them, what we see in Revelations chapter 21 and 22 is that God is renewing his good creation in full restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. He is making all things new. So we also see in uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, he's making all things new in the revealing of the new Jerusalem and the redemption of his people. Let's look at verse 2 of chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And skip over to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The revealing of this capital city of the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, shows God making all things new through the redemption of his people and dwelling with them in the new Jerusalem. So again, to, to fully appreciate what we see happening here in Revelations, we want to go back and see its parallel at the first creation. So when in the Garden of Eden, God made a place, he prepared a place for his people where he would dwell with them, and it was beautiful and perfect, and holy. It was the Garden of Eden. But it was the home from which his people were cast out because of their sin, and cut off from the blessing of his presence. But here in Revelation 21, with this new creation, we see God who is making all things new, revealing the new place which he has prepared for his people, where he will again dwell with those that he has redeemed, where they will worship him, he will reign in righteousness forever and ever. And what in, in verse 2 and in verse 9, what I find so amazing and incredible is that the beauty of this new Jerusalem, its holiness, its perfection, is itself symbolic of the holiness, the perfection, and the radiant beauty that Christ has given to his bride, the church. We see God making all things new through the redemption of his people in the revealing of the new Jerusalem. We also see God making all things new uh, by the restoration of his presence. Look down at verse 3 of chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So here again, we see this really clear parallel or connection between the first creation and the new creation with the presence 
and the blessing of God. So back in Genesis, we read how God, having made man in his image, dwelt with them in the garden. We read how he would walk in the garden in the cool of the day and that Adam and Eve would have enjoyed the, the blessing of this presence. But that relationship was instantly broken by sin. When immediately after breaking his commandment, Adam and Eve instinctively hid themselves from his presence. And then they are sent away from the garden. But in the renewed creation, in the new Jerusalem, here in Revelation 21, we read that God's presence will be restored to his people. So we tend to think, or at least I have always tended to think of heaven as, as some place, a place, out there, invisible, far, far away, but it's where God is. And while that's not entirely wrong, um, a better understanding of heaven um, is that heaven is wherever God most fully makes his presence known to bless. So in this eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth, what is amazing is the place where God most fully will make his presence known is with his people. Heaven will be with us. They really are not holding places in our, in our minds for the riches of this statement. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, I has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is, this presence of God, this communion of love with him, is the inheritance. This is what Jesus is sharing with us. The joy and the love and the fellowship that he shares with the Father. This is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He is making all things new. We also see in verse 4 of chapter 21 that in the eternal state, God is making all things new through the removal of the curse. Let's read verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the eternal state we see in this passage marks the utter end of sin and its effects forever. So again, we parallel the first creation with the new creation, whereas at the first creation, after the fall, came sorrow and pain and death because of sin, these are those former things, the effects of the curse that are passing away at the new creation. So after the final judgment, all of these are ended for God's people because they have no more sin. The blood of the lamb has washed them white as snow and glorified they stand before him clothed in garments of righteousness, made holy as he is holy. So as I was falling asleep last night, I was thinking about this, this verse and, and thinking about when, well, it says he will wipe away every tear. When do we wipe away tears? So the times that, that I have, have done this, as I, as I have thought back, 
have always been when I am consoling one of my children. So as I have held them uh, when they were upset and told them that it's, it's going to be all right, that I love them, I wipe away their tears when I tell them there's no need to cry anymore. And that is the picture of this verse. That is the tender love that God, the Father, is showing as he consoles his children for the last time. After that, no more tears, no more pain, no no more death. He is making all things new. So next we see um, in Revelation 22, where in the eternal state, God is making all things new by bringing peace to the nations. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this is a really surprising feature, or at least it was to me, about the eternal state that we see in this Revelation account in other places in the scriptures as well. And it is the, uh, the presence that's evident of actual nations, geopolitical nations, in this new earth. Um, in Revelations chapter 20, 21 and verse 13, it says, um, well, the, the word that is used for people um, is actually a plural form of that word, and it is better translated as peoples. So they shall be his peoples, is the rendering. Um, and we see this concept in the book of Isaiah as well, as the nations are bringing their treasures into the kingdom. So I'm going to say something that may seem surprising to you, and it, it almost goes against my own politically incorrect soul. Um, but diversity, ethnicity, nationality, and culture, all of these are God's idea and part of his good creation from the beginning. It is only the sinfulness of man and the effects of the curse that have perverted his good design and turned these into something which divides and destroys. This is a truth for such a time as this. I think today, as we see all of the tragedy and the horror of what's happening in the Ukraine, the nation warring against the nation, we're reminded that this has been going on in the world since the day that Cain murdered his brother Abel. And as long as sin... And the curse of sin are in the world, it will not stop. But as you are watching the news this week, and as we see these images of sorrow and death and oppression, remember that even these, one day, will be the former things that have passed away when he makes all things new. We read here, when the tree of life that once bloomed and produced its fruit in the Garden of Eden blooms again in the new Jerusalem, its effect will be for the healing and the wholeness and the peace of the nations. 
Even so, quickly come, Lord Jesus. He is making all things new. Finally, we see in the eternal state that God is making all things new in the rule of his kingdom and the revealing of his glory. Let's pick up in chapter 22 and verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. God is making all things new. And in the eternal state, God the Father and God the Son will rule on the throne. And his people will worship him there. And his glory will be seen with no veil. There's really nothing I can add to this. I'd like to read it again. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I'd like to read three verses of, a, of an old hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It says, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory. Glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand and glory. Glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let me close by reading from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let me encourage you to spend some time in these passages yourself. I have been greatly encouraged, as I know you will be, to let us consider and study the eternal state and let us as creation, await with eager anticipation 
the revealing of the glory of the sons of God in his presence. Thank you. You're dismissed.